Welcome to the podcast. My name is Bruce Mole with Commonwealth Magazine. With me today are two environmental advocates, Mark LaBelle, a staff attorney at the Acadia Center. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me, Bruce. And Greg Cunningham, director of the Conservation Law Foundation's Clean Energy and Climate Change Program. Welcome, Greg. Hi, Bruce and Mark. It's great to be here. We're going to be talking about the largest clean energy procurement in the state's history. There were dozens of projects vying for all or a portion of this contract, and the Baker administration chose perhaps the most controversial one, Northern Pass. It's a project that would tap hydroelectricity produced by the provincial utility Hydro-Quebec and import it into New England via a transmission line through New Hampshire that would be built by the large regional utility Eversource Energy. Let's start with you, Greg. What were your initial thoughts when it was announced on Thursday that Northern Pass had won this contract? I was severely disappointed, and and that's a huge understatement. Um, This is a procurement that many of us, Mark and myself included, have been waiting for for years. Uh, Multiple legislative sessions have passed, and uh, in anticipation of not only a law authorizing this, but now finally the process and the procurement and a decision. And much of that process has gone well. And the procurement itself solicited and and obtained a wide array of bids with all kinds of really cool, clean, well-located projects and proposals. And the Commonwealth chose the worst among them, which is just is baffling in many respects, and the justifications for it, frankly, just don't make sense to us at this point. Greg, uh, how how about, um, you you said in your statement that you issued the other day that choosing Northern Pass reflects a process corrupted by the heavy hand of our region's largest utility. What did you mean by that? What I meant is that the decision makers at the table the selection committee in the procurement was made up of three utilities, uh, the Department of uh, Energy Resources and and a third party advisor. And Eversource is the largest of those utilities. It is the largest utility in the region. And we think it had its thumb on the scale. And uh, that unfortunately, this is um, an example of a a bit of self-dealing. Mark, what, what was your reaction when, when the news came down? Um, well, we certainly share Greg's concern about self-dealing. That, that was one of our major focuses in uh, advocacy around the 2016 energy law that authorized this procurement. Um, the fact that Eversource was part of the selection team and was one of the bidders is a, a real issue that, that requires full public scrutiny. Um, the announcement yesterday was... Uh, a big step, but only one step in this larger process. Um, the contract still needs to be negotiated and potentially approved by the DPU. Uh, the rest of this process will include a, a report that needs to be made public by an, the independent evaluator that, that Greg referenced, as well as full scrutiny by the Attorney General's office. Um, so we really need to get some of these basic facts about the, 
the pros and cons of these bids out into the public so we can can really uh, have confidence in what happened here and, and have a, a real evaluation. The problem at this point is the, the bids, the portions of the bids that were made public um, were heavily redacted. We don't know what prices were offered. We don't know what the potential in-service dates were for a lot of the projects. Frankly, we, we know a lot less than we, we know. Uh, we know the, the routes for the different transmission lines. We know something about the types of resources, uh, energy resources that were bid into to both all the different projects, but there's a lot of details that are, that are still unexplored. Um, and, the, and the potential for self-dealing here is really high. Um, just to put a point on it, you know, James Judge is the, the head of Eversource Energy, uh, the, the Umbrella Corporation. He's also the chairman of the local distribution company that's on the evaluation team. Um, before, a couple years ago, when he was made the CEO of the whole company, he was one of the uh, acting heads of the uh, corporation that is building the Northern Pass project. So, um, you know, the, with one person in charge of all of these, these different operations, everyone at Eversource knows that ultimately uh, he is the boss um, and there's, there's one share price uh, where, where uh, the, the, the results of the company are, are reflected in the, the financial markets. But to be fair, now I, I, I agree that it looks like there's a, and, and I think I interviewed um, Secretary Beaton, the um, Secretary of Energy and Environmental Affairs, whose office played a strong role in, in running this process. He said the legislation required them to use these utilities in, in, the, in, in negotiating, well, developing the procurement and then picking the winner. Um, and there were some, there's, there were some safeguards built in. You mentioned the independent evaluator, but also National Grid, which was in the same position. It was it was trying to win a contract here, was also working with Eversource in evaluating the bidders. So you would think two competitors uh, might keep an eye on each other in that process and keep each other honest. You would think. Um, so I, I I take it that there is a that you want to see that if there's a a natural a conflict there, but there's also been a long feeling that uh, Eversource has an inside inside road into the Baker administration. Now I don't have any evidence to point to that, but do either of you, like like Greg, do you do you have a? You said you thought they had their their thumb on the scale. Is it just in the in the selection process itself, or or more broadly than that? It's a combination, Bruce. You know, I think the process was designed to allow for that degree of influence by a big utility. And that was unfortunate. And many groups, including Marks and mine, complained about that uh, phenomenon uh, to no avail. We did hear, we don't have hard evidence, but we did hear over the past year, and this includes after bids had been submitted and while they were pending, Massachusetts regulators whom one would expect to be objective, um, commenting upon their procurement of Canadian hydropower, their anticipated uh, purchase of Canadian hydropower. Now, there were many bids in this process, and most of them did not include Canadian hydropower. For some reason, the administration continued to talk about its anticipated purchase of hydropower, even though it had lots of other bids pending in front of it. That didn't instill any of us, I think, with confidence that this was going to be an arm's length objective 
consideration of all proposals. So, yeah, there's a lot of different moving regulatory pieces here in the evaluation of these bids. Uh, one thing I would flag in particular is the um, the uh, Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection last year uh, put out a new regulation on the clean energy standard, uh, which a lot of uh, environmentalists and clean energy advocates supported. Uh, but one of the main features of, of that regulation is effectively a new incentive for uh, large hydro that had not previously existed. So the, the DEP's action um, put a little bit of a thumb on the scale in, in favor of, of large hydro compared to the, the rules of the road before that, um, which in some ways is, is changing the rules of the game in the middle of the bid. Um, I don't want to be too much sour grapes about it because we, we supported it and other, other folks did too. Um, but that was one of the key moving pieces here uh, that happened in August of last year and then a, a further tweak in December, uh, both of which um, made large hydro a, a more attractive option in many ways. Let me ask you guys about the procurement process itself because typically state procurements, now this was a very big one, but typically they put a project out to bid and then it goes silent until the bids come in, they're evaluated and a winner is selected. This one was quite different in that all the competitors <coughs> turned themselves into knots trying to get their position out in the public eye as if they were going to influence someone somehow about how their project is better than the other guys. Central Maine Power, which was another company trying to import hydroelectricity from Canada, said there was no question they were the cheapest. Uh, TDI New England said there was no question that they were the most environmentally friendly project trying to bring hydroelectricity from Canada. Others said, don't do any business with Hydro-Quebec because it's not new clean energy and it won't really reduce carbon emissions in a, in a global sense. Um, the wind pe offshore wind people even tried to get in saying, give us a little sliver of this because it'll send a great signal for wind and, and on and on. And, it, and it, Greg, I'm sure you, you're, you were aware at the end, C Conservation Law Foundation ran a full-page ad in the Globe saying, don't pick Northern Pass, basically. And then Northern Pass's defenders jumped on our pages with opinion pieces saying, pick Northern Pass, don't listen to CLF. And a huge public give and take about this, what is normally a silent process. What was that all about, Greg? Because you, you're, you're, CLF participated uh, that's in That's all about a high stakes game here. I mean, this, I think all parties involved had significant incentives to try to sway the outcome. You know, for the utilities and the developers, it was economic. For folks like us, it was about uh, you know, the future of our efforts to mitigate climate change and this first big step in that direction and trying to get it right and get it right not only from a scientific and energy perspective, but from a public confidence perspective. And, and as a result, we were all doing what we could to try to ensure that the selection committee had all of the information it needed in front of it. We submitted, you allude to the full page ad, we submitted a couple of letters to the DOER as well, highlighting the fact that Eversource was suggesting in the bid process that it had this hybrid wind hydro project uh, that was pending and was anticipated to receive permits in 2017, uh, when in fact 
that had never been proposed to, to any regulator to our knowledge and certainly wasn't pending in front of the New Hampshire Siting Committee. So yes, it, it, it's a, this procurement is, um, it's, a, it's a game changer. And that's why it had everyone doing uh, and undertaking every effort they possibly could to influence it. And when you run an ad like that, are you really saying uh, regulator or, or the people doing the evaluation of these contract bids, are you saying, are you aware of this or are you saying issuing almost a warning, don't do this, uh, or, or we might have to respond in some fashion? What is the message that that, that ad and, and your comments sort of indicate? The message is principally to inform. I think it's understood that um, to the extent that, in fact, a project is chosen that has misrepresentations in its bid, that there will be any number of consequences associated with that, um, not necessarily coming or initiated by the CLFs of the world. Um, but it's it's principally an effort to inform and to make sure that both the deciders are aware of it, but more importantly, that the public's aware of it and will be conscious of it when the decision makers make their decision. And, and now that has happened. And I guess we'll see how the public reacts to um, a decision that doesn't seem to match up very well with the qualifications of the project or the facts on the ground. Mark, are you uh, and people in, in your same area advocating for the environment here sort of caught in a little bind though on this because I think the region, I think it's pretty well established that the region needs an infusion of a new energy, some new energy sources. And the state is going out to get this procurement, and there's going to be another one for offshore wind. We need it. We need clean energy. That's what you and others have been pushing for. Um, is it going to be hard to fight against? Um, and perhaps, I mean, someone off the record the other day was saying, could this be another Cape Wind where it's just litigated or delayed and delayed and delayed and to death. Are you worried about that? Um, so I think we have a, a little bit of a different position on this than, than CLF. Uh, there is a role for Canadian Hydro in our in our energy picture. Uh, we want to make sure that the consumers don't spend more money on it than they need to. It's a mature resource. It's been around for a century. Um, so that it doesn't need the same type of incentives as, as wind and, and solar, newer technologies that are, are really becoming more commercial. Uh, right now. The, the problem in our view really is this, this self-dealing question. Um, and it's not because we don't know so much right now. Um, there's, there's really no proof either way until we get the independent evaluation, until we get the attorney general's office and other parties to really um, be able to scrutinize all the details here. It, it's hard to say. I, you know, with this particular project that was chosen, um, I think everyone can anticipate, not just Acadia Center, but uh, the administration, uh, Eversource itself, uh, can anticipate litigation about it, um, which you know increases the, the risks of, of picking this option. Um, all the projects had risks. Uh, ev everyone tries to put their best foot forward when they're trying to, to win a bid. Uh, it's like going on a date, right? You, you, don't, you, don't, you don't show your worst sides on the first date. You, you try to put your best foot forward. Um, there are additional specific concerns that Greg and I have talked about on, on the Northern Pass bid um, that, you know, doesn't, you know, the, the, the smell test is, isn't coming out great right away. But, you know, as, as I said, we're, we're not trying to prejudge this 
we we just it's all about the the getting the the right information out into the public so that we can can see and really uh, let both the independent evaluator, the attorney general's office, and the, the interested public, uh, and the, ultimately the voters, to to understand what happened here. Greg, how about you? Is CLF in an awkward position? You know, you want this energy, but you may not want this project. How how do you deal with that? Uh, of course, we are, and that's in part why this is such a perplexing decision, because they have made it so much more difficult for the Commonwealth to ultimately lock in the this essential clean energy. Um, as Mark alluded to earlier, there are more processes to come. There's a review by the Department of Public Utilities. There's a decision still from the New Hampshire Siting Committee. And um, there's a huge amount of uncertainty associated with both of those. Now, other projects were further along in their permitting. Other projects were, were in fact, shovel-ready, as Northern Pass claimed it was, but in fact isn't. Um, you know, why the Commonwealth elected to go with a project that is virtually certain to result in litigation when others have largely moved past those opportunities and are, are ready to go is, is a question that I think remains to be answered. And, um, you know, we intend, we CLF intend to, we're, we're very active in the New Hampshire setting process. We will see that through. We'll see what the decision there looks like. We're going to participate at the Department of Public Utilities review of the contract and the supply and see what that case looks like and ultimately what the decision looks like and um, make our determinations based on those facts and those, those decisions from uh, our regulators. Mark, um, step back a little bit big picture here for a minute. Um, so people get confused. They hear about 9.4 terawatt hours of electricity and what have you. I think the guy that runs Eversource in New Hampshire yesterday said it amounted to about somewhere between 15 and 20 percent of what Massachusetts consumes in electricity during the course of a year will come from this contract, which is somewhat mind-boggling because Massachusetts, I think, accounts for close to half of the region's electricity uses. So this is a big deal. But can you put that in a little context for people that are trying to understand why this is a big deal? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really unprecedented in, in a lot of ways. Um, I think we have it at about 17% of Massachusetts uh, electricity demand, um, which puts it at around 9% of the, the region's, uh, the New England's energy demand. Um, it's a multi-billion dollar contract, um, you know, it, it's, which runs for 20 years. So we're, we're, we're locked in uh, if, if this happens. Um, it's, it's not something that's temporary. It's, it, it shapes the entire regional energy picture for literally decades to come uh, with, with enormous financial uh, consequences. Um, so, you know, the, there's a lot of different pieces to the, to the regional energy system um, we do need new supply. Uh, it's not, I think, nearly as dire as ISO New England's study and, and some of the people who I think misinterpret that study uh, try to paint uh, the picture. Um, but but we do it, doing nothing is, is not an option. We, we need to invest in more renewables. We need to invest in more efficiency. Um, you know, energy from, from hydro in Canada can be part of the, the picture, 
Uh, but it, it's important to, to really vet and, and make these decisions in the right way uh, so that we have public confidence so that we have public confidence in the future procurements that they uh, won't have results that, that aren't the ones we need. Um, I guess I, I, I want to just sort of, for our listeners, uh, Mark brought up ISO New England did a study, and just so you understand what he's talking about there, they just did a fuel security study uh, that is sort of a typical utility-type analysis. They looked at 23 different scenarios for energy uses like a decade down the road and, and what could happen. And they raised some red flags about um, what, we're, what we experienced uh, just a few weeks ago in this very severe cold snap. Um, some argue the facts, but there appears that in that type of situation, there's a limited amount of nat- – there's only a certain amount of natural gas that can, that can make it into the region – some people advocate for more natural gas pipeline capacity, but if you're not advocating for that, you're you're probably advocating for other sources of energy to come in, and and one of those would might be hydro or wind or offshore wind or what have you. Um, and I I wanted to give you a chance too, Greg, to sort of take a big picture of this. There's a lot of money, there's a lot of power, uh, but in terms of sort of if you could put it in that recent cold snap, uh, if we had more sources of energy coming into the region, wouldn't that have eased some of the price pressure that we were seeing with natural gas? It would have. Bruce, I think I, I need to start by challenging you a little bit on your characterization of the I, I, I thought you might. security study. <laughs> um, I, I would describe it as anything but a normal study. Um, it involved a set of scenarios that were unprecedented and have literally – never occurred in our region uh, to the extent that that they hypothesized. Uh, you know, the shutdown of a nuclear power plant in the coldest winter ever for the entirety of the cold period, um, <clears throat> the, the loss of a, a natural gas transmission line delivering natural gas into the entire region. So these were cataclysmic events, which I would argue ISO New England typically doesn't plan for, and it might not be responsible to plan for the highly unlikely events. They didn't assign any probabilities to them, and so we don't know. I think if they did, what most uh, planners would say is, you know what, some things you just can't plan for. We can do what we can within an economic uh, range, but but those are too outside of the realm of possibility uh, to build out and spend money on. So. So there's that. But but to your point, yes, these – and to Mark's point, these resources, the, the resources purchased through this procurement absolutely would have an impact on the number of days and hours uh, that oil would be generating in a future cold winter. You know, this the, – the cold spell this winter was an anomaly, but it's an anomaly that we do see. Um, oil is – uh, you know, was it 30 to 36 percent of our total resource mix at certain times? That said, renewables were cranking almost right along with it. And so with more renewables online, they would, through our markets, bump off those dirtiest of power plants and clean up the overall resource mix. So it's, it's a combination of providing a diversity of resources, which does provide a, a resiliency and reliability, but also cleaning up uh, the resource mix and forcing the retirements of some of these old dinosaurs that continue to pollute our air. 
So, um, Mark, I have uh, one more question for you guys. Um, the, as you pointed, I think at the beginning that we didn't learn a lot in this initial announcement because now the state moves into a contracting phase and they'll actually develop an actual contract with pricing and everything that'll come out later this spring. Um, but the uh, Secretary Beaton and Judith Judson, the head of uh, the Department of Energy Resources, both said that the prices, the price they got is very competitive with what you would get with carbon-emitting fossil fuels. Um, and Judson went even further. She told me, we were very pleasantly surprised by how cost-effective the bids came in. It's great news for clean energy that it is able to compete with traditional energy resources. Now, I bring that up because most of your, your um, industry types, uh, in, including the guy that runs ISO New England, told Congress last week that it's going to come in above market price, these, these hydro from Canada and offshore wind. And I think that's been the general expectation, that it would cost more but it would be worth it environmentally, and over time, it's going to be worth it even more. Um, but they're sort of indicating that it might be, I don't know what they mean by fossil fuel, but I assume they mean natural gas, which is most times pretty cheap. Do you guys think this is actually going to be that cheap? Well, so to start, uh, I mean, hydro can be cheap. Uh, the, the marginal cost of generation in some sense is... Uh, close to zero, that it's all capital costs and, and limited uh, uh, marginal generation costs. Uh, transmission projects can be expensive. So, you know, between a, a, a cheap product that can be connected with a, a major transmission investment, you're not quite sure where it's going to come out. The, one of the big unknowns in, in the, the statements of those policymakers is, is whether or not they're including the value of these credits for the clean energy standard. So if you include that value, it makes the the value of the underlying energy look even cheaper than, than the overall bid. Uh, one of the requirements of the RFP is you had to include uh, uh, turnover control of these types of credits uh, as a, a condition of your bid. So if you take that payment off the top, it makes the underlying uh, contract look uh, far cheaper than the actual total contract price. So it, it depends how they're doing the comparison. Uh, it wouldn't shock me that, that they were right, particularly when, it, when you account for the, the transfer of the clean energy standard credits. Greg, uh, give you just a, a, a moment or two. To, do you want to answer that too? I'm, I'm particularly unsurprised with a bid that includes Hydro-Quebec because this is, uh, Hydro-Quebec is a governmentally owned and operated corporation and uh, the Canadian taxpayers are subsidizing the cost of that energy to a degree. I would add they are likely using existing hydropower and so they are not likely to be incrementally adding to our clean fleet in the region. Instead, we're just shifting clean energy down to Massachusetts that otherwise would have been pumping elsewhere, presumably in Canada. So that, that gives them a bit of a leg up on pricing. I would just suggest, though, generally, th those comments were wonderful to hear and wonderful that they got as much play as they did because they are indicative of not our future but our present, that renewables are competitive on price. The trajectories of decline in cost have been steep and rapid. And uh, we're at a point now where 
the arguments that we can't afford renewables or, or we're buying a Cadillac when we're buying renewables, they, they just don't apply any longer. And that's great news for the region and the climate. Well, there you have it. I want to thank our guests, Mark LaBelle, a staff attorney at the Acadia Center, and Greg Cunningham, director of the Conservation Law Foundation's Clean Energy and Climate Change Program. I want to also remind our listeners, you can, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and SoundCloud, and we'll see you next week. Thanks very much. <laughs>